did. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Very near the tail end of the three years that Jesus ministered here on the earth, just prior to going to the cross, there was an occurrence in a, a place called Caesarea Philippi that I want to uh, read with you this morning and talk about for a little bit. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, it says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, and others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But whom say you that I am? Who do you say that I am? I want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning, folks, about who do you say Jesus is? Now, we look at this and consider the question, and the first thing that I think prompts into all of our minds is the fact that we can't be saved without realizing that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was sacrificed on the cross for us, and he paid the price for us. But let's read the rest of the story and, and take it a little different direction. So he said, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my father, which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, the rock that he's talking about is the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ. But notice where he says, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for God has revealed this unto you. God's the one that revealed to him that Jesus was the Christ. So, folks, when we talk about building the church, when Jesus refers to building the church, I think all of us think first and foremost about getting people saved and bringing more people into the family of God. And what a wonderful thing that is. But you're the church too. Individually, you're the church. So what you say of Jesus doesn't just bring you into the family of God. And the importance of this event, this occurrence, is not just so that we can find out that Jesus died on the cross for us and come into God's family. Be born again, as Jesus referred to it in John chapter 3. But it's, it also is a means of building you up to be who God has destined for you to be. He continues to speak, Under the, upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice the next thing he says in verse 19. He said, and I will give you unto thee the keys to the kingdom of heaven the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now folks, up until just a few years ago, I thought they were, they mean the disciples. When Jesus sent out the 10 and then when he sent out the 70 two by two or in pairs, I always thought that they were preaching that Jesus was the Messiah. Come see the man that's the Christ. But they couldn't have been doing that. If that were the case, then why did Jesus waste his time asking them 
who do they say that he is? Why didn't Peter answer, well, you're the Christ, just like you told us to tell people. We believe that you're the Messiah. That's not what they've been preaching. And if his purpose was to use the disciples to spread the news that he was the Christ, that he was the Messiah, then why did he tell them not to tell anybody? See, folks, if it went the way that I used to think, and I think most people probably are in the same boat, if it went the same way that we thought that it, that it was taking place, then Jesus would not have charged them not to tell. The disciples would have reacted in such a way as this. They would have said, well, we've been preaching that you're the Messiah, and now you don't want us to do that? But they haven't been doing it anywhere along the way. And notice attached to the building of the church. And again, that's not just an institutional church. I'm talking about building you and building me. Causing us to grow, strengthening us, equipping us. He said, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now we could debate what the keys to the kingdom of heaven are. We could make a list of things that are the keys to the kingdom We'd have to include the word of God in there. We'd have to include the name of Jesus in there. And there may be other things that we'd want to include on our list as well. But whatever somebody thinks that it is, notice what Jesus said that it would do. He said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's talking about authority. He's saying, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And you'll operate in authority. And notice that the binding and loosing starts here, not in heaven. Whatever you bind here on the earth, heaven will back you up. Whatever you loose here on the earth, heaven will back you up. Now the words bind and loose just simply mean to prohibit. Bind means to prohibit. The Greek word means to tie up. But it just means to prohibit or forbid. Loose means to untie. But they both start here on the earth. Continuing on in verse 21, it says, from that time forth. That means this was a pivotal time. This was a pivotal event. He said, from that time forth, Jesus began to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Please notice, folks, He's plainly showing them. He's identifying to them. Here's what's to come in the next few weeks. Here's what's to come. I think this is the main reason, at least in my thinking, the main reason why after Jesus was raised from the dead, he upbraided his disciples for their hardness of heart and their unbelief because he's already told them. He shared with them about what was going to happen. Now, I don't fault the disciples. I don't think we can fault the disciples if we don't put ourselves in their shoes with their experiences. How many of us would have expected, not knowing any more than they knew, how many of us would have been looking for Jesus to be raised again the third day? Might be a very small number. So I'm not throwing off on them for the, the, the actions that they took, but Jesus expected them to believe. 
If not, he wouldn't have upbraided them for their hardness of heart. Who do you say he is? We've been to Caesarea Philippi. Uh, anybody that's been to Israel on a tour of the important places has probably gone there. And there is a place of soothing waters. It's a very peaceful place. And there's a side of a mountain that's carved up. And, and it is a, it, it's a place where people could go and worship a multitude of idols. There's shrines all cut into the, uh, the face of the mountain. And there are dozens of places there where people could offer incense or sacrifice to different gods. So when Jesus is asking the question, he's surrounded by the gods of the people. There's also a place there where there's a, a big cave, a massive cave opening into the side of the mountain. And the water doesn't run there anymore. At least it doesn't run the same way that it used to. But there's a place that was called the gates of hell. See, we think that Jesus is just saying the gates of hell, meaning the entrance to hell. But it had specific meaning to them because of the place that they were at. And at this place called the gates of hell there would be human sacrifices made I'm not sure which God it was that the people believed required this but it was a place where mothers would throw their newborn babies into this gates of hell and there was a whirlpool there was many waters there and there was a whirlpool of some type that under normal circumstances and usually cause these children to be drowned. But the idea was, and I don't know who came up with this, but the idea was you gain the favor of this particular God that you're sacrificing to if the waters don't take the baby under, don't kill the baby, and somehow or another it brings it back out. You can imagine that would have been a very, very rare occurrence. So when Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, he's talking about false idols, false religion, false gods. He's saying that he will build the church and that the church shall win. Or as he said, exercise authority over all the power of the devil. What he understands, no matter what God somebody's worshiping, he knows it's all of the devil. So he's talking about a place of victory. Well, we know that place of victory comes through relationship, through accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We know that's where the victory comes, through the use of the, na the name of Jesus and standing in faith. But again, I want you to see, and, and this is the great scripture that the Roman Catholic Church uses to identify their purpose and their importance in the world, Peter being what they called the first pope, and all the popes from that point forward, because it specifies here they believe that he's saying Jesus, that Jesus is saying that Peter would be the rock that he builds the church on. But that's not why Peter is blessed. Peter's not blessed because he's of such great faith or great spiritual strength. The blessing 
for Peter is what God did by revealing to him the purpose of Jesus and the fact that he was his son. We can see that clearly if we keep reading down a little bit further. Verse 21, he began to show unto his disciples his death, and bur- death burial, and resurrection to come. But verse 22, it says, Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it not far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. So just as Jesus identifies that Peter was speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, or according to the revelation of God, to say that he was the Christ, now Peter turns right around and says, No, Jesus, that's not going to be how it is. Jesus identifies that he's speaking by the inspiration of the devil this time. So I guess we could say in this event, Peter was one for two. The revelation of God. But then he also spoke by the inspiration of the evil one. There where it says, get behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not. That word savor means to mind. It means the operation. It's talking about the operation of the mind. It's the same verse or same word that Jesus used, that uh, Paul uses over in Romans chapter eight, where he says, "They that are spiritual mind the things of the spirit, but they that are carnal mind the things of the flesh." It's the same word translated "think" in Romans chapter twelve, verse three, where he tells us not to think above that which we are able or what we should think, but to think soberly. As God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So he's talking to Peter about how it's through the mind that Satan has influenced him to say the wrong things. Now I can well understand Peter's thinking on this. He's probably thinking, man, we don't want that to happen. We don't want Jesus to die. We don't want him to experience all the hardships and the things that he's plainly showing us this coming up in a couple of weeks. But folks realize thinking or speaking from your emotions, as well intended as they may be, doesn't mean you're speaking for God. Now I want you to turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 1. Again, remember Peter was blessed according to what Jesus said because of the revelation. Not because he was smart. Not because he wanted the right things but because of the revelation. So let's start start reading in verse 15 of Ephesians 1. He said, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now what was it that Peter was blessed for or blessed according to what we just read in Matthew chapter 16. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed that Jesus is the Christ to you, but my Father which is in heaven. In other words, the spiritual revelation is what set Peter apart for the blessing that Jesus pronounced. Again, it's not his personality, it's not his daredevil attitude. I like Peter a lot. He made a lot of mistakes, but boy, he was always willing to jump in the middle of something. 
He was the one that when Jesus was walking on the water, everybody else is afraid. He probably was too to begin with. But Jesus calms them down and says, it's just me. Don't be afraid. And Peter says, if it's you, tell me to come out there with you. I like this guy. He challenges God to challenge him. And Jesus doesn't bat an eye. He doesn't say, oh, Peter, you foolish little guy, you. I'm the son of God. Don't you know that you can only walk on water if you're the son of God? Jesus just said, come. Sure. Folks, I want you to understand something as miraculous as that occurrence was. And I've, I've racked my brain trying to figure out what, what went on there. Did Jesus suspend gravity to walk on the water? Or did the water solidify under his foot every time he took a step? Or was it some other way that's beyond our peanut brains to figure out? Any, all, all of the above, who knows? But Peter never was afraid to challenge Jesus because he knew that the things that Jesus did, he was always willing to share with his disciples. Folks, if Jesus was willing to share with Peter and the others too, the things that we read about and the things that we know about in, in uh, his earthly ministry, how much more would he be willing to share all of the, the blessings of his goodness with you and me? God's not holding back or holding out on anything, any part of his power, any part of his purpose or his will. The idea that God has changed somehow because the church has advanced for several thousands of years is an insult to the character and the nature of God. So here's Paul praying by the Holy Ghost. I cease not to make mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding. Some translations use the word spirit there. The eyes of your spirit being enlightened. That you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Notice what he wants our, our revelation, the spirit of wisdom and revelation to do. Now, again, this is a, a, a Holy Ghost-inspired prayer. This just isn't just Paul's idea about what to pray. The fact that the Holy Spirit saved us a record tells us that it's a spirit of God-inspired prayer. And what does he pray? He prays that we would receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. So that our eyes are opened, our spiritual eyes are opened. What does he want us to see? What does the Holy Ghost want us to see? What did the Holy Ghost impress Paul to pray for the, his, the people that were in the church in his day? But the church is the same. The church hadn't changed. God hasn't changed. The purpose for the church hasn't changed. So if Paul by the Holy Ghost wanted that for these people, then God by the Holy Ghost wants it for us too. He wants our eyes, our spiritual eyes to be opened, not just our fleshly eyes, our physical eyes, but for our spiritual eyes to be opened, to know certain things. And folks, I would submit to you that all of the weakness of the church in the body of Christ in this present day is a result 
of not knowing the things that belong to us. See, folks, you can't know what God has done for you and be weak. You can't truly know what God has done for us through Jesus' sacrifice and be weak. You just can't do it. So if the church is weak, it means we don't know. So what's the remedy for that? Paul's praying for the church that they would know. What does he want us to know? He wants to know the hope, wants us to know the hope of his calling. Now I believe there's a twofold purpose identified in all of these things, these three things that Paul speaks to us by at the instruction of the Holy Ghost. I believe the church should know the hope of his calling. Well, that's to go make disciples, not to go get people saved, but to make disciples. Remember in John chapter 8, Jesus made a distinction between the Jews that believed on him and those that became disciples. He said to those Jews that believed on him, if you continue in my word, then you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. He said, that's the key if you want to become a disciple. You're a believer now, but if you want to continue on in the word, then you'll be my disciples. And you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. So can we say if we simplify it, and I hope it's not oversimplifying it, but can we say that disciples are ones that know? Believers are the ones that may hope. But it's only through continuing the word that you know. And that's what Jesus said made his disciples. What's he wants us to, want us to know? Well, he wants us to know the hope of his calling. Again, I believe that means church-wide because the church has a purpose. I'm talking about the church at large. Individual churches have different purposes depending on the way that God sets things up and anoints the person to be in charge and to lead the people. But I believe there's a personal side to all of these things too. Not only does he want us to know the purpose for the church, he wants us to know what he's called each of us as individuals to do. I had a guy contact me a couple of years back and he said that he wanted to meet with me and I, I, I don't like meetings. I think hell is one big meeting. <laughs> I, I just can't stand to do that. We have staff meetings because we have to, and the staff will tell you that I try to get people in and out of there as quick as they can. I don't see a whole lot accomplished by meetings. So anyway, that's my mindset when he said he wants to meet with me, and I said, well, what for? People that want to meet with you don't want to tell you why they want to meet with you. But he said, well, I just wanted to get to know you. And I said, well, that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> even if we do meet. But what is it you're after? Well, it came down to this. He wanted me to introduce him to the church and tell the church that he was going to start another church in this area. But I, and I asked him, I said, why would I do that? And he said, well, pastor, we're all on the same team. And I said, you know, we're really not. Now, he had told me enough for me to know that he had been at another place, another city a few years back. And he tried to start a church there, and that didn't work out for him, so he left. So I said, you tried to start a church before, haven't you? He said, oh, yeah. 
And I said, what'd you do when it didn't work out? He said, well, I left town. And I said, well, see, that means that we are not on the same team. You're on the try and see if it works team. I'm on the team that, that goes where God tells you to go and stays put. Now, I've had pastors talk to me over the years, some from this area and other parts of the world, really. And they all want to know, should I stay with my church? Should I stick it out? We're in a tough time. Should I keep doing what I'm doing? And I can't relate to people like that at all. And I tell them, I don't know how you have a choice. If I'm where God puts me and if I'm where God tells me to go, then how can I see if it's going to work out and bail if it doesn't? I don't get that. And I believe that's the same thing whether you're in the ministry or not. If you don't know what you're, that you're doing what God has for you to do in life, Or let me turn it around this way. The people that don't know what God has for them to do and where they're supposed to be. They never become secure in him. You can't be secure in God unless you know what you're supposed to do. Because your whole life is questioning. Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I stay here? Should I go away? I've seen people chase Well, what are they chasing? They're chasing what they think is a better life in another place. They think since things are tough and we have such goofy people in charge and, and government and leadership and stuff like that in this, this state, that they'll go somewhere where the laws are more receptive to whatever they're looking for. And it never works out. That's not a valid reason to move. I've seen people move from here to just an hour away. And they say, now we're going to keep coming to the church. And nobody has. They may intend the right thing. But the choices and the decisions that they make have a tremendous effect on them and on their families. Because they don't know what God has for them to do. They experience financial hardship and so they try to escape it. Well, financial hardship can find you anywhere, can it? We should make our decisions based on what we know God has for us to do. It should govern everything about our lives. Where we live, how we live. It should govern everything. So I believe that the hope of his calling has a public meaning, congregational meaning, church-wide meaning, but it also has a personal meaning for each one of us. So he wants us to know this. He wants us to receive revelation, to see and know what his hope is, the hope of his calling is. The next thing he mentioned is, and what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints? This word inheritance means heirship. We are joint heirs with Christ. Now, this is the big one. Well, I, I, a big one. I, I don't, by that, I don't mean it's more important. But maybe it's more prevalent. Maybe it's more common. 
This is a big, big, big missing piece for most Christians. They read the words that say we're joint heirs with Christ. But how many people really know what that means? There are spiritual riches attached to the inheritance that we have. But if you don't know what they are, you can't walk in them, appropriate them, or use them. God wants you to know what you've inherited. He doesn't want you in the dark. He wants you to know. Then the third thing he wants us to know is what is the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us as believers. Isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't pray for the church to have more power? He prays that our eyes would be open to see what we have. Now, how can he know that we don't need more power? Because he knows the power that we do have is sufficient to take care of everything that there is. See, people that claim to be weak think what they need is more power. And what they need is for their spiritual eyes to be opened to what they have. You have always been equipped from the time that you were born again, the second that you were born again, you have always been equipped for the worst problems that have ever come to you. You are already equipped because you're in the family of God. You are already equipped for the the worst crisis, the worst problem, the worst situation that could ever develop against you. Now, folks, I would dare say that there's not a person on the earth, not a person that's ever lived on the earth that felt like they had that power. But it's there. It's available to us. So when Jesus talked to Peter and the disciples at Caesarea Philippi, he said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The only definition of the kingdom of heaven that we've got is the one that Jesus gave us. You remember when Jesus was asked by his disciples to teach us to pray. He gave them what is known in church circles as the Lord's Prayer. It's really not the Lord's Prayer other than the fact that it came as a suggestion or a principle from Jesus. It's not a New Testament prayer. Jesus said after his resurrection and ascension to the the right hand of the Father. He told us the keys to prayer under the new covenant. He said, whatever you call for or require or ask in my name. Ask the Father in my name. Then I'll do it. Well, the Lord's Prayer doesn't contain the name of Jesus, so it can't be a New Testament prayer. Now, you can adapt the principles. But Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, the so-called Lord's Prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. See, the kingdom hadn't come in Jesus' day. It has in ours. But he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the only definition for the kingdom of heaven that you can find in Scripture, where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven. Now, we don't have a lot of questions about how things are in heaven, do we? I've never really been asked seriously by anybody what things are like in heaven. Now, the exception to that is sometimes women will ask, widows will ask if they'll see their husbands and live together in heaven like that. And 
And Jesus told us in another place that it doesn't work exactly that way. But just to be nice to some people, you just say, yeah, you'll see him. You'll be with him all you want. But other than that, I've never been asked what things are like in heaven. Everybody assumes they know what things are like. And the Bible really doesn't tell us much about heaven at all. I think there's a reason for that. If we understood how good heaven is, we wouldn't be able to focus on doing the things we're supposed to do here. So what are things like in heaven? They're exactly the way God made them to be. They're exactly the way he wants them to be. Because it's the place where God is. But now God's in us too. So we've been commissioned, we've been charged to occupy till Jesus comes back. To occupy means to establish the kingdom of heaven here on the earth. And it's not a physical kingdom, it's not an earthly kingdom. That's what Jesus was questioned by a lot of people during his earthly ministry. They thought that the Messiah was going to be all about freeing them from the Romans or freeing them from anybody's governmental rule and they would have their own place, their own land, their own kingdom. See, the reality is, folks, the Jews don't believe much about spiritual things. And the reason for that is because God dealt with Abraham in natural things. He couldn't understand spiritual things. Nobody could. So he dealt with him about natural things. That's why the blessing of Abraham is provision. That's why the blessing of Abraham is healing and health. God talked about living within them. But the Jews don't see that as being a spiritual change. The Jews just think the Messiah will be in their midst like Jesus was with the disciples. So the heavenly kingdom that they're looking for is where all of their enemies are defeated here on the earth and they just live together with God here. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus goes to the cross. Just like he told his disciples. And remember John chapter 14, 15, and 16 particularly. John gives us um, an eyewitness account. A bird's eye view if you will. Of what things were like at the last supper that the other gospel writers don't tell us. And a lot of it, the biggest part of it, focuses on the Holy Ghost. The disciples were all upset because Jesus said he was leaving them. Well, he just had been telling them that for the last several weeks, according to Matthew 16. Maybe it's because they did tell him, or because he did tell them what was coming up, that they've come to the place where they're in great sorrow about him leaving. Maybe it's because they took to heart some of the things that he said. And maybe that caused it to have a bigger impact on them. I don't know. It makes sense, but I don't know for sure. But they were all upset because Jesus was going to go. But Jesus is saying, it's better for you that I go. Because if I don't go, then the Holy Ghost can't come unto you. Now, here's what that means. 
He's saying, if I don't go, then the Holy Ghost can't come back to do the work that he's supposed to do in the church because the price would not be paid. He had to shed his blood. He had to die on the cross. He had to fulfill the punishment of sin upon all mankind. And it was only when he did that and the power of God came back upon him to raise him from spiritual death. That's when the door was opened for the Holy Ghost to come and live within us. So when he says, if I don't go, the comforter of the Holy Ghost can't come. He's talking about the price that he has to pay. See, folks, if Jesus didn't pay the price for sin and spiritual death, somebody still has to. But thank God he did it for us. And he said that makes things better because now the Holy Ghost can come upon you. He can live within you. And, of course, we know, we see from the example in the book of Acts, the church being born, the disciples being born again, and the power of the Holy Ghost coming upon them. But, folks, one of the things that the Holy Ghost is supposed to do, John chapter 16, verse 13, I believe it is, he said, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he'll guide you into all truth. He'll guide you into all truth. Now, he can't be talking about the truth of salvation to the extent of being born again. He's not saying the Holy Ghost will teach you so that you can come into the family of God because the Holy Ghost is only given after you're saved. The result of being saved. So he's saying the Holy Ghost will guide us into all truth as Christians, as believers. See, I see that as a big part of Jesus building his church. I see that as a huge component to the church being built Talking about individuals, you and I being built and developed so that we can grow spiritually. I see that as a huge part. The guiding us into all truth, or one translation says, the guiding us into all reality. I like it both ways. You can't know the truth unless the Holy Ghost guides you into it. You can't know the truth of the hope of your calling unless the Holy Ghost guides you into it. See, a big part of guiding us into all truth or guiding us into all reality results in us finding out God's plan and purpose for us. A big part of the Holy Ghost guiding us into all reality is showing us what the riches of the glory of our inheritance is. The Holy Ghost guiding us into all truth or all reality is a huge part of us recognizing, having our eyes opened and uncovered to the reality of the power of God that resides in us. Now, God does things in different ways. Jesus ministered healing, for example, in a variety of ways. Some people he ministered healing to just by speaking the word. Other people he ministered healing to by laying his hands on them. And in a couple of places, he ministered healing by spitting on them. One case, he spit on the ground and made a little mud pack and put it on a blind man's eyes. And when he came back from the pool of a silo and washing it off, he could see. So God brings about the same results of healing in a variety of different ways. There are really seven different ways that, that Jesus ministered healing in the four Gospels. So God moves in different ways, in different situations. He may move in us in different ways from time to time. 
One of the things that the Bible says, well, why don't you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. It's talking about Jesus coming to the earth. Verse 16 says, For verily he took not on him. Talking about Jesus. He didn't take upon himself the nature of angels, but he took upon him the seed of Abraham. He's talking about flesh. He didn't come back as an, he didn't come to the earth as an angel. He came to the earth as a man. Remember what Jesus asked the disciples that we read in Mark and uh, Matthew chapter 16. He said, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Jesus always magnified the fact that he was human. In fact, when miraculous things would take place, he would tell the people around, I'm not the one doing this stuff. Now, certainly he was the one that was performing it, but what he's saying is the power to do it didn't come from him. In other words, Jesus told everybody that would listen and everybody that was present at these miracle events and all the things that happened during his earthly ministry, he very clearly said, I'm not doing this of myself. This power to heal, this power to perform miracles is not of me myself. So that has to mean that Jesus was not ministering on the earth as the Son of God. He was ministering on the earth as the Son of Man. Well, if he's the Son of Man, if he's human just like you and I, how was he able to do the great miracles and healings and get the miraculous results that he did? Because he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. See, man can be anointed of the Holy Ghost. How is the Son of God going to be anointed to be the, uh, anointed of the Holy Ghost? Who's going to anoint God? Who could anoint God? The Bible talks about Jesus, the Holy Ghost, and the Father all being co-equals. Well, if they're co-equals and Jesus is on the earth as a co-equal with God, who can anoint him? Well, he couldn't be. Yet he said that the work or the power to perform these miracles wasn't of himself. So that means he can't be operating on the earth as the son of God. One of the, th- the hardest things for us to understand, I believe, is the unlimited power that was upon Jesus as a man anointed of the Holy Ghost. We think, and we think we're being loving, we think we're being spiritual by never assuming, not even considering that we could have the same power that Jesus had on the earth. Yet that's the very thing Jesus said we would have. He said, the works that I do shall you do also. And even greater works than these shall you do. Because I've gone to my father. But Jesus isn't on the earth anymore. He's seated at the right hand of God the father. He's seated at the right hand of God the father. One of the things that's. Um, well that's had a big impact on me over the last several years. is the reality that the Holy Spirit is supposed to lead us in. I was praying, oh, it's been um, maybe six years ago. And it was about two years into this attack, this physical attack, that came to me or came after me or came upon me. The doctors have diagnosed it as Parkinson's. Well, from the first symptom that I saw, I claimed healing. 
a year later, it, the first year I didn't go to the doctor, didn't find out anything from the doctor. But it got to the place where I thought I might need the doctor's help. Because when I first began to believe God, things got worse in a hurry. And I had a variety of symptoms. Started off with one symptom, but then a, a variety of symptoms were beginning to, to appear. So I went to the doctor and they diagnosed what they believed was going on, what was taking place. And I, I became a lot more educated about Parkinson's disease than I really want to be, to be honest with you. There's not some... Well, I started to say there's not one test that they can give you to determine whether it's Parkinson's. But that's really not accurate. There is one thing they can do, but it's, it, the procedure is kind of like a spinal tap. It's extremely painful. Pretty risky, too, from what I understand. And even at that, they can't 100% guarantee that they'll get a diagnosis or get the information they need to make a, a specific and accurate diagnosis. Well, who wants to submit to that? We want to do something for you that'll hurt like crazy. And it really might not tell us anything, but here's your opportunity. So I opted out of that one. But I found out, as I said, I found out a lot of things about Parkinson's. What it does, how it affects things. And I saw some... Uh, well, I don't know how to, how to say it any better than I started having some devastating symptoms. I've shared a little bit on, well, very infrequently. But the first thing that started happening, the tremors were the first apparent symptom. And those tremors affected my right side, specifically my right hand and my right foot. They never have spread to, the, to another side. And of all the things the doctors told me about what to expect and so forth, getting better wasn't one of them. And so the first year I was kind of winging it, so to speak, because I didn't know what to believe God for, really. The doctors, going to the doctors, I've been to four over the last seven years. And they've each given me a little piece of the puzzle to help me know what to believe for. But before that, I didn't know what I was believing for. I was just believing for the symptoms to stop. And they didn't. And it got to the place, and I've learned over the years, that Parkinson's is a neurological disease. It's something that attacks your nervous system. And as a result, it attacks your breathing. It attacks brain function. And so within a relatively short period of time, 18 months or so, I was at the place where I didn't have the strength to get through a service. One of the things that, one of the first things that took place is that I found out that I couldn't breathe normally. And especially when I tried to preach because whereas breathing is an involuntary action, with Parkinson's, you have to focus to breathe. And so I'm trying to talk while I'm trying to breathe at the same time. 
focus my attention on breathing. Well, I lost what I was trying to say. And for the first time in my life, I had to use notes. I had to have something to remind me of what it was that that I felt like the Lord wanted me to, to share during services. And attached with that was a fear. Folks, the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, God hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. I know specifically that, spirit, that fear is a spirit. That scripture tells us, but I found out specifically. Now, the loss of breath or the involuntary action to breathe, from what I understand, is the reason why many people in public life Actors, singers, that kind of stuff. That's why they have to retire. But here I am preaching three services a week. Trying to learn how to breathe at the same time that I talk. I know that sounds silly. And until I experienced some of these things, I don't know that I could have related to anybody that was trying to share that with me. But I lost virtually all strength. They had to put a microphone on me and get the microphone so close to my mouth and then turn it up so high to get some amplified, enough amplification to where people could hear what I was trying to say. They were on the edge of feedback for years. And I didn't have the strength to go. I'd finish a service. And go into the speaker's room and collapse. And I was believing God. Hoping that it was going to happen. Hoping that my my healing would manifest. Don't get me wrong. It's not like I ever doubted it. I can't doubt it. I know the word's true. But as I said earlier. Jesus ministered healing in a variety of ways. I wanted him to minister to me in a quick way. And folks, it frustrated me for several years. It frustrated me because I was looking for God to do something. Now, after believing him for a number of years for healing, I was looking for him to do something to bring about the manifestation in a sudden manner. And it was only like, and and again, this has only been for the last three years maybe, three and a half years perhaps. It's only after I came to the point where I realized this is going to come by me standing in faith and standing in faith alone. That was the only thing that got rid of the frustration. And folks, I got to tell you, for years, well, uh, let let me qualify that a little bit. For about four years, this pulpit became a prison for me. I lost all strength. I lost all ability to breathe without focusing, concentrating on doing it. And this spirit of fear was dogging me in such a way that I hated to come to church. Now, I'm believing all the right things. I'm saying all the right things. But then the Holy Ghost, thank God for the Holy Ghost. I came upon the idea, I believe it was God inspired, you judge it for yourself. But I was reading 
In John chapter 16, where the spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. I knew that word truth was the word reality. And I instantly knew that I needed to start believing the Holy Ghost to guide me into the reality of my own healing. Now, I knew the reality of healing being purchased for us. That reality was very well established. But for the Holy Ghost to guide me into the reality of my healing, personally, individually, I had to come to terms with how God was going to bring about my healing. And I came to realize it was going to be on my own faith, based on my own confession. At that point, when I accepted that, that changed everything for me. It changed everything. Now, God had already done some miraculous things for me. He gave me back my strength. Now maybe they have to back off a little bit on the, the microphone because I can speak again. I, have, I can have a muster of force to my voice that I could not before. And now I breathe without thinking about it. I had somebody tell me one time, actually it was the doctor's assistant. They were quizzing me on certain things. And I said, well, it used to be like this. I used to not have any strength, but I've got my strength back. And it used to be that I had to focus on my breathing. But now I don't have to anymore. And they determined that that was a coincidence. And I laughed and I said, well, you call it whatever you want to. I'm calling it the healing power of God. And they said, why do you say that? And so I asked them, I said, well, of all the things you told me not six months ago to expect as Parkinson's progressed, is getting better ever anything that you considered? And they looked at each other and said, well, no, absolutely not. And I said that it can't be, it can't be just coincidence. There's got to be something else at work here. That something else is the healing power of God. Now, folks, we've seen miracles in other areas. We've seen financial miracles for this church that have been jaw-dropping to people on the outside. We went through some financial hardship and believing God every day for enough money to get through. It was when we were trying to finish the building and the lawsuits and all that other kind of stuff. And if you don't know the story... Go back and listen to it on tape. I don't want to tell it again. <laughs> Telling it again makes it real. And I'd rather pass up on that if you don't mind. But we had some tremendous financial hardships in, in crisis over a five or five and a half year period of time. And God saw us through. Now during that time, the Lord spoke something to me because I was taking every situation as it was arise and I was trying to put my faith on that. This bill would come in and I'd try to believe God for that amount of money. This bill would come in and I'd try to believe God for that amount of money. And finally, the Lord spoke to me and said, quit trying to micromanage this situation in faith. So from that point in that situation, in the remainder of that situation, I just said, okay, well, I get it. I'm bringing worry and stress upon myself by trying to micromanage this thing and look at it in detail. So, Lord, I just believe you to see us through. And he did. This situation, this physical situation has been just the opposite. 
because there was a time where I was just believing God for a general healing of my body. But then as these symptoms would increase, new ones would show up. I found that the Holy Ghost guiding me into my reality of healing was to take each one of these symptoms one by one and take care of them. Deal with them like that. So that's what I've been doing. I had, uh, there were two things that happened well within the last several months. I don't know exactly, but within the last several months. There were two symptoms that manifested that were new. And I found out that they are symptoms of Parkinson's. They seem totally unrelated. But I found out through a little bit of research that they are related to Parkinson's in the advanced stages. And so I took those two symptoms. I called them out specifically. I rebuked them. I cursed them and commanded them to go away. And they left in 48 hours. Now, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Folks, what I'm here to tell you is God works in different ways. But in everything that he does, it still comes back to the reality of the authority we have in the name of Jesus. Jesus said, upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I found out that what I say specifically about these symptoms is very, very important. Now, folks, the reason I'm bringing that up is because we can operate in just a general faith and not be looking to the leading of the Holy Ghost and miss out on it altogether. What I mean by that is if I had not come to the understanding and began making my confession about the Holy Ghost guiding me into the reality of my own healing, then I could still be believing God in a general way for healing from any and all sickness. And might not get the same results in the same way. See, God's got a plan for you specifically in whatever situation you're in. And it's by the leading of the Holy Ghost that we're going to have to find out how to make that work. I've told you the story before about how Dr. Roy Hicks was doing some ministry in the Philippines or, well, I think it was the Philippines. And he was there for an extended period of time, a couple of weeks And he was preaching two or three times a day. These were pastor's meetings primarily that were coming in from all over different places. And he started getting sick. And he did everything he knew to do, everything he'd ever done before about claiming healing from this sickness. He had an upset stomach. They were flu-like symptoms. And he did everything he knew to do to believe God for his healing and got no better fast. And so he went to the Lord and prayed about it and said, Lord, I don't understand. I'm doing everything I've ever done before that's brought healing to me. And it's not having the same effect in this situation. And the Lord spoke to him and said, use more salt with your food. Folks, it wasn't even an issue of healing. He was dehydrating because of the change in the climate, the tropical climate or whatever it was. Once he started using more salt in his food, then he started retaining more water. And the symptoms went away. 
Well, see, that's an example of what I mean by the Holy Ghost guiding you into all reality. I don't know what way it's supposed to work for you. I know how it's supposed to work for me. My symptoms are diminishing one by one. And like I said, of all the things the doctors told me, getting better wasn't anything anybody ever considered. They don't know what to do with me now. Now they're thinking maybe it's not Parkinson's. Well, I don't care what you name it. Jesus' name is above it, whatever you call it. Did you find Hebrews 2 yet? Verse 16, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Take on flesh, in other words. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. The Bible says Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father right now as our high priest. And notice the two characteristics that it mentions about our high priest. He's faithful and he's merciful. He's faithful and he's merciful. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. I believe Paul's the author of the book of Hebrews. The Holy Ghost is the one that originated it, originated what to be said, whether it was Paul or whoever. But I, like I said, I believe it's Paul. It's certainly Paul's message. At the time the book was written, there didn't seem to be anybody else out there with Paul's message. So notice it says in chapter 3, verse 1, to consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Now your profession, is that's the same word as confession. It's the same word used over in Romans chapter 10, where it talks about confessing Jesus as your Lord to be saved. So it says, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession or profession, whichever word you want. They both mean the same. Notice what it says, Jesus, in intermediating between us and God. Notice the only thing he has to work with. Notice the only thing he has to bring to God on our behalf. The words we speak. The words that we speak. Look with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, let's go to chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 14. It says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Notice the connection between what we say and Jesus being our high priest. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Notice this says Jesus feels your pain. But he doesn't change the rules because he feels your pain. See, a lot of people are willing to cry and beg and plead with God based on his mercy. But it still comes down to Psalm 107, verse 20. He sent his word and healed us. Jesus is the word made flesh. And he sent his word and healed us. Let us therefore, because he feels our pain, he's the high priest of our profession, 
What we say is what he administers to God on our behalf. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Notice here again, Paul talking to the Jews talks about the high priest. They understand that. They, that makes sense to them. We don't know anything about priests in the Western culture. But Jesus is the high priest of our profession. Having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. There it is again, without wavering, for he is faithful to promise. Notice the connection between Jesus being our high priest, our faithful and merciful high priest, and the words that we speak. You remember the question I asked you in the beginning of the service? Who is Jesus to you? Jesus isn't just our Savior that gets us into the family of God and might help us ride out the storm until he comes back. He's a high priest. He's a high priest that administers on your behalf to God the Father and to administer from God's behalf or on God's behalf back to you. And the only way he can do that, the only thing the Bible tells us he has to work with are the words that you speak. That's it. Whether you're believing for something short-term or long-term, whether something is, is taking place quickly or seem to be dragging on, he is the high priest of our profession. He is the high priest of the words that we speak. Folks, what you say is everything. Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, talking about the parable of the sower sowing the word, he said the whole of the kingdom of heaven, you know that kingdom of heaven that he identified is where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven. He said the whole of the kingdom of God is works as if a man should speak into the earth. It changes everything. It changes everything. Your words come to pass. That's the thing I've gotten from this whole thing. And the latest thing, the last thing I guess the Lord said to me specifically about this, I just remarked, Lord, this sure is taking longer than I expected it to. And he said this, he said, if it was just you believing for your own healing, it would have been done by now. But this healing has to do with your church. Now I'm not exactly sure what that means. Or let me say I'm not sure of all of what that means. But I know some of it. P.C. Nelson was an authority of the, he spoke, 32, spoke and wrote 32 different languages. He was an authority, foremost authority on the Hebrew and the Greek languages in his day. He was either number one in the Hebrew and number two in the Greek or vice versa. 
as far as the educational community was concerned. Well, he was run over by a car. And as a result, medical, this was back in the early 30s, I guess, 1930s. And medical science hadn't developed to the point where they had a lot of options. They were about to amputate his leg because of the injury. He was a Baptist minister, but he knew that James 5, 14 14 and 15 were in the Bible. They didn't practice it. Now, that's the scripture where it says, Is any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church, and let them, the elders, pray over them, the sick, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick or heal the sick, and the Lord shall raise them up. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven. He knew those scriptures were there. He never relied on them, never preached them. But the Lord started dealing with him about those verses of scripture. So he told the Lord, I don't know anybody that does this. Even if I was going to go this direction, who would, who would pray for me? Who would anoint me with oil and so forth? Well, he reminded, the Lord reminded Brother Nelson of a university professor, a lady, that she and her husband had a little congregational church. And he had heard it said of them that they prayed for the sick. So he inquired of them. They came to talk to him. And as they were there sharing the truth of the word and telling them a little bit more about healing than what he knew and so forth, the Lord spoke to him. Actually, it's through tongues and interpretation through these two people. And here's what the Lord said. The Lord said, I will heal you through the faith of my servants, talking about the man and the wife. I will heal you through the faith of my servants. Or if you want a healing ministry, you can take healing on your own faith. I I mixed that up a little bit. Let me say it this way. The Lord said, I will heal you through the faith of my servants, meaning the two. And then he said, or if you want to receive it on your own faith, then I'll give you a healing ministry. Well, Dr. Nelson said, I'll take it on my own. So he did. He took healing on his own and wound up having a fantastic, tremendous healing ministry. Well, there's something about this, and it's something that I started praying from the beginning. It's something I read that John Lake prayed when he first went to South Africa. He prayed that healing would flow like a river and salvation would rise as the tide. Well, that's one of the first things that I ever started talking about concerning this thing. And looking back at it, I have to concede that I was in, uh, unconsciously led by the Holy Ghost to do it. Because I'm looking for healing to start flowing like a river, connected with and as a result of this thing that I'm dealing with. I think that's what the Lord was talking about. This is not just a matter of my own healing. If it was, I could have taken hold of it much before then, this time now. But it's for the church too. I'm looking for healing to flow through our church like a river. And I believe that healing will bring people into the family of God too. Let me tell you one last thing. One of the symptoms of this thing that's been there for a long time, I don't know exactly how long. I'm really not trying to keep a calendar on a lot of this stuff. But something that's been there for a long time is that it slowed down my thinking. I used to be real quick-witted. 
but I haven't been for a long time. I first became aware of how to label it. I was at lunch with Chip, our youth minister, and Adam, my son, who's now the media director for the church. And they got to talking about something, and they were bantering back and forth as fast as you could fire machine gun bullets. And I couldn't keep up. So I just leaned back and laughed at them, listened to what they had to say. But I've got that back now. I've got that back. It's only been in the last couple of weeks that help me say this right, Lord. It's only been in the last couple of weeks that I've regained the boldness that I had before that spirit of fear came. Now this pulpit's like heaven on earth for me. It wasn't for a long time. Thank God it is now. Can I tell you something else? The first year of this thing before I'd ever been to the doctors. It was a Wednesday night, midweek service. There weren't any more than maybe 100 people here. I was attacked with something. I don't know, didn't know at the time what it was. But I got hot. I felt faint. I had all the symptoms of a stroke or a heart attack. And I was standing about right here. And it stopped me from doing anything. Whatever I was talking about stopped. I tried to just wait a moment, gather myself. Had to unbutton my collar and loosen my tie. And standing right here, I knew that nobody would be upset. I mean, everybody could see something was going on. And I wanted nothing more in my whole life than to go sit in that chair right there. I thought about asking the ushers to bring a chair up here. Maybe I could sit down up here and continue to minister in whatever way I was able to or whatever. And something happened. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, I knew if I made it to that chair, if I went to that chair, yielded to the desire to go to that chair, I might not ever get back up here again. Now, some months later, when I went to the doctor about the Parkinson's stuff, and, and I don't know how long it lasted. You know, in a time like that, it seems like forever. But maybe it was a couple of minutes before the thing passed. When I went to the doctors, and the first thing they wanted to do, the first doctor wanted to do an MRI. He came back with the MRI results and asked me, how long ago was it that you had your stroke? And I said, I've never had a stroke. He said, oh, yeah, you've had a stroke. He said, it shows clear as a bell on the MRI. And thinking about it, sometime later, I first passed it off as nothing. 
Because he said, well, maybe it was just a shadow on the MRI and it doesn't, doesn't mean what we think it means and so forth. But I got to thinking about that. And I realized that that's what was happening on that Wednesday night service. And folks, I can't tell you how I know, but I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, if I had yielded to go sit down in that chair, things would be a whole lot different now. I think that's all the more reason that our eyes need to be open to the power that's in us. What Paul called the exceeding greatness of his power that worketh in you. You've already got what you need to overcome anything that ever comes against you. You've got what you need to overcome what you're facing now, what you'll face next week, what you'll face next year, what you face at any time for the rest of your life. It's already in there. It's already yours. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being a merciful and faithful high priest. So we hold fast the profession of our faith. Lord, the world tells us we need to be our best us. Be your best you. Lord, we don't want to be our best us. We want to be who Jesus died for us to be. We want to be who you've made us. Father, I thank you that your word is uncontrovertible. Your word is solid. Your word is true. It never changes. It never fails. Your word, which is the power of God, unto everything that Jesus purchased for us can never fail. No matter what it looks like, no matter how we feel, your word never fails. So we say that we are who you say we are. We say that we are the children of God. We say that we're the healed of God. We say that your provision always sees us through. Thank you, Father, for the privilege to stand in faith, to take hold of everything Jesus did for us. I thank you for the privilege to take hold of my healing. From what medical science says is an incurable condition, I say it shall be even as if it had never happened. I thank you, Lord. You never leave us nor forsake us. I thank you for seeing these people through. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, that was a little different. I didn't come expecting to tell you anything about me. But I'm more than happy to magnify the Lord. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us, being part of our church family. Have a great day. And if you can come back for healing school tonight, we'd love to see you. You're dismissed.